This morning's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapters 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who blessed his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hi, my name is Bob Whitaker. Welcome to ECC. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the senior pastor here at Evangelical Community Church. You know what I began with was an introduction. Some of you already know me. You know a lot more about me than just that introduction. But routinely, when you want to know someone or they want you to know them, a person will tell you something about themselves, right? You ever noticed on many books, on the back of the book or on the cover or something, there'll be a description of the author? Descriptions that answer questions that might be something like this, what does he know, right? Is he an expert on the subject? You kind of want to know that. A question you might have of that author that might be answered on the flap of the book is, what has he done? Or what has she done? Is she a person that has demonstrated that she knows what's going on in this particular area? Another question you might have that you want to know about that author is, what kind of life experiences does he or she have? That's frequently why, for instance, somebody will say, this person is so-and-so, and they have three children, and things like that. It tells you a little bit about them. You know another question you might want to know? If the person was speaking directly to you, trying to help you out with something, you might want to know 
a question that goes something like this. Does he know me? Does he know where I'm coming from? Does he know my life circumstances? If he does, I might listen to him more carefully. Or maybe you would have a question about that person's origins. You know, maybe you're an Ancestry.com buff and you want to know the background. When we think about Jesus, those questions and others come to mind, inevitably, if we really are thinking about him. As Josiah mentioned, we're in a series starting today called Rediscovering Jesus. We're going to look at the Gospels throughout this semester in connection, Sunday night as well, and we're going to do our best to rediscover who that Jesus is. What he said, what he did, what he called us to do, and who he is in his nature. Now, let me uh, give you a heads up right away. If you come to Connection tonight, Sunday night, it's not going to be the same passage, okay? There's lots of material in the Gospels. It'll never overlap. It'll always be a new topic about Jesus. So come back. You won't get it all here. Be there on Sunday night, and we'd be delighted to see you at 6 o'clock. But when we ask the question, who is Jesus, we routinely go to the Gospels, don't we? The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John is different than all the rest. The first three they call the synoptics, which just means the same kind of thing, right? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sort of the same in the way they paint the picture of Jesus. You know, one thing that's the same about them is they begin, all three of them, by describing Jesus as to his humanity. Even if it's Matthew who starts off with a genealogy or Luke a different one, or even if it's Mark who says this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all three of them start with Jesus' ministry on earth. John's entirely different. And because he's so different, I want to start there. Not that we'll be in John every week, but I just want to use John as a preamble. Why? Because John does something, as you noticed, entirely different. He says, in effect, I want to introduce you to Jesus. And if you want to really know Jesus, I think it's important that you know who he is before you know what he did. I want you to know something about his nature so that when you see what he did, his nature will inform those actions. And so he begins. When I was a kid, um, I grew up in a, in a home that taught the Bible. I um, heard the Bible read all my life, but somewhere in my early teens, someone told me, you really need to sit down and read the Gospel of John. It's an amazing gospel. Just read it. And so I did. Now again, remember, I knew the Bible. I'd heard the stories all along. But when I started out reading the gospel of John, I, I have to admit I was bewildered. I started out and I heard these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was God in the beginning. Not a single word about Jesus Christ. Or was there? 
Of course, I knew that it was about Jesus, but even the words, the way John said it, just kind of made me wonder, why? Why start that way? As I continued to study the Bible and um, learn about John and the other Gospels, it occurred to me that just like every author, you speak into an audience, right? You talk to a group of people. And John was talking to basically two groups of people, a Jewish audience and a Greek audience. Now, concerning the Jewish audience, if you want to understand what John was saying, you might ask, what did they hear? This Jewish audience. When John said, the word was God, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh, and continued to use the word, word, the people who were Jewish, they had a background. They understood. First of all, they would have understood it in the context of Genesis chapter 1, right? Remember that story? The opening story of creation. God spoke all things and they came into being. God said and God spoke and God said God's word continually. The whole first chapter is God speaking. It's his word. So that's the first thing that would have reminded them of what John was up to. Oh, he's talking about creation here because creation was all about the Word. But there's another reason um, that John and his audience would have communicated well on this level. All throughout the Bible, the God of the Bible is spoken of as the God of the Word. For instance, you may remember Psalm 33, 6, or maybe you don't but it's a description of creation in the Psalms. And the description goes this way. By the word of the Lord, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Later on, Psalm 107, it says this. He sent out his word, that is God, sent out his word and they were healed. It was a very common thing in the Old Testament to hear word related to God. However, there's another reason that the people who were Jewish would have understood what John was talking about. For those of you who are new, um, we've been in a series on the Old Testament for a long time, and we just finished it last week. In the last part of our series on the Old Testament, we remembered the Babylonian exile, a time where the people of Israel were taken away to captivity. There was Babylon, there was Assyria, and there, were, there was Persia. They were taken away in captivity, and part of the problem in captivity is the people lost a lot of their cultural moorings, right? As a matter of fact, they began over time between the time of that Babylonian captivity all the way up to Jesus to kind of lose their language, so to speak. There were a lot of people who were raised as Jewish boys and girls if they didn't go to the synagogue and actually learn they wouldn't have known Hebrew very well at all. This dominant world culture that they lived in had another language. It was a language that they understood and communicated with more than Hebrew. It was called Aramaic. It was the street language. Now, there's a problem when you get to a street language, right, in communicating back into an ancient text because the people were speaking Aramaic. Hebrew was read in the synagogue whenever the Scripture was read, and sometimes it was just hard to understand. So you know what the rabbis did? They were the teachers. 
Okay? The rabbis decided that they needed to bridge the gap between Hebrew and Aramaic, and they did this. They said, we're going to write these things and sometimes say them, and they turned into writing called targums. Again, sayings to begin with, writings later. As a matter of fact, the Yemeni Jews still use the targums. The targums were, shall we say, a translation of Old Testament passages or even a commentary on the Old Testament passages. And one of the things the rabbis were really concerned with is to make sure that God didn't become too humanized. They thought the name of God and God himself was so transcendent, so far out there, so holy, they didn't want him sullied by humanity. And for that reason, and perhaps other reasons, the Targums would translate passages of Scripture like this. Here's one. It comes from Exodus, and if you read it out of your Bible, it would say something like this. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. The Jewish rabbis translating with the Targum said, oh my, we can't do that. People meeting God? That's way too personal. Let's do it this way. It's the same thing. So they translated it, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the Word of God. God was speaking to the people one time about Sabbath, and he said, I want you to understand why Sabbath is so important. He said this. He said, Sabbath, this is a sign between you and me for all generations. The Targum translated it differently. They said, the Sabbath is a sign between my word and you. Not personal pronoun, me. That's just too human. In Isaiah 48, again, a description of creation. And we have these through all the Old Testament, not just in Genesis. We hear these words speaking about God. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand separated out the heavens. Now we could go to the extreme, right? We could get real literalistic about that. That's not the point of it. The point is that God proactively, as an agent of creation, the creator of all things, knit it together, put it together. But the Targums, reading that, said, now you know what I'm going to say, right? It's so predictable. The Word of God laid the foundations of the earth, and the divine Word spread out the heavens. So when John, and we don't know for sure, if this is his rationale, if this is his reason, when John spoke to the Jewish audience, perhaps he said, I know they'll get this. I'm going to say the word. And I'm going to latch it to Jesus. And they'll know what I mean. But remember I told you there was another audience, a Greek audience? Different altogether in some ways, similar in other ways. What about John's communication to them? It was written to both audiences, wasn't it? And the word is used identically. In Greek philosophy, there was a guy called Heraclitus about 500 B.C. Would have been about the time the people of Israel were trying to re-identify themselves and get out of Babylonian captivity and establish themselves as a nation. Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher, he said, when I look around the world, 
I see a constant state of flux. I mean, things are just moving. They're just happening. As a matter of fact, you could get swallowed up by this world. It could look chaotic and out of order. It could look impersonal. It could look lots of things. Take a look at the rivers, he said. The rivers are flowing constantly. You never step into the same river twice because the river you stepped in a few moments earlier is a different river than the one you're stepping into now or the next day. That's the way the world is. That's the way the universe is, see? He says it's moving all the time, but he said, I I see something else. I see unity in this universe. Something holds it all together. What is the unifying factor that holds it all together? You know what Heraclitus decided to say about that? He said it was the logos, which is translated in Greek, word. He said divine logos. He said divine reason. He said mind of God. He said the mind of God, the divine logos, is the thing that holds this thing all together His influence was pretty wide because lots of Greek philosophers in their own way repeated that theme. So John, when he wants to introduce Jesus to both audiences, says the Word, the divine logos, the Word of creation became flesh. What an introduction. He just smashed every single paradigm of the culture. The Jewish culture that was worried about God becoming too human, the Greek culture that had God so far out there that it was like a disembodied soul and not really connected to humanity in a real physical way, John said the word. Became flesh. The word was with God. The word was God. And that word became flesh. Now, is that a marvelous way to introduce Jesus or what? The early church and even into the medieval church thought it so remarkable that they would draw pictures that were symbolic of the various gospels and the image they routinely used of John's gospel to symbolize it was an eagle. Why? Because it was just above it all, transcendent, looking down and giving a different kind of definition to reality. The Word became flesh, said John. Now, what does all that mean practically? Three things. First of all, John is saying at least these three things. One, he's saying this. The Word was the source of everything. Everything that is. Everything that is came from the Word. The Jesus Christ I'm about to introduce you to. He was the creator of it all, and he's the sustainer of it all. As a matter of fact, St. Paul borrowed this theme in Colossians chapter 1. He said he's the invis- he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, and in him all things hold together. Not only did he create, but he sustains, so all life comes from him, and all life is sustained by him. That's who the Word is. That's who Jesus Christ is, says John, the one you're about to hear about. On one occasion, um, again, the Apostle Paul trying to communicate this to an audience that he 
um, met was walking through a, a Greek-infested town. That sounds kind of weird, but I mean a town infested by Greek thought, right? And gods and Roman thought and everything, and, and he looked around himself and he said, look at all these statues or altars to gods. And he happened upon one that was an altar to the unknown God. And Paul sees the opportunity. He says, oh, there's my inn right there. I can tell him about Jesus this way. And this is how he did it. He said, that unknown God that you're talking about, that you are worshiping, that you don't really know, let me introduce you to him. And who did Paul always introduce everybody to? Jesus. As a matter of fact, he said, to borrow the words of one of your poets, in him we live and move and have our very being. See, those aren't original words of Scripture. They're not original words of Paul. They're original words of a so-called pagan poet. And Paul said, life is all around you. If you open your eyes, I want to open your eyes to one of the poems that your poet has written. And I want to use that to point out something. In him, you live and move and have your very being. In Jesus Christ, you exist. And you do not exist without him. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And all things were made through him. And nothing exists without him. That's amazing. I don't know any other person in history like that, do you? Qualitatively unique. The second thing that I want to mention that John is saying in this passage is not only is the source of everything the Word, the Word is the perfect communication concerning God. Communication's not always perfect, is it? It's garbled. I know I get my communication garbled with people, and sometimes up here I can see the garbled look on your faces sometimes, and I'm trying to ungarble my own words. John says, no, no, you don't have that problem with Jesus. There's no gobbledygook. There's no gargle in the words. He says, and what he says is God's word, period. It's pure. It's perfect. Communication breaks down in a variety of ways, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes communication breaks down because you just can't hear clearly. I remember when um, I took a trip to London years ago, about 20 years ago. First time ever I was doing the tourist thing and going to different places, and I went to the war museum, which is really like the war rooms, where Churchill and all the generals um, basically planned the war, um, the Allies against the Axis powers of World War II. Fascinating. If you ever go to London, just skip everything else and go to that first. And then after that, Everything else was good, but not that good. Well, that's just my personal opinion. It was great. But you know what? It's going to be hard to find because it's underground and it's not marked. And that's exactly the way it was to begin with. Nobody knew where it was except the people who went there. They never found it. They never uncovered it until after the war. You walk along the street, just looks very normal. There's a set of steps that go down into the ground and inside they orchestrated the war. While I was in there, I looked around for souvenirs, right, for my wife and kids, and I found one I thought well suited to my son. It was a little box called a crystal radio, and the statement was something like this. This is the technology that was used 
for radios when Winston Churchill and others were orchestrating the war. So people would have these little crystal radios and they would listen to those inspiring speeches from, from Winston Churchill to endure, to never, ever, ever give up. So I thought, man, that's great. I'm going to take that radio, I'm going to take it home, and we're going to build this radio, and David and I, we're going to listen to some broadcast. So we took it home, put it together, got the wires all working just right, and all I could hear was static. And I know there's a voice out there somewhere. And so we worked with it and worked with it, and then we could barely hear a voice. I couldn't really determine what it was saying and certainly not who it was. And I thought, for crying out loud, is this the best they could do? I mean, I don't know how we won the war if this was the kind of radios we had. I mean, I couldn't have told you if it was Adolf Hitler or General Patton. It would have made no difference to me. Somebody, though, you see, at some station in Indiana, close by, was broadcasting with perfect clarity. They might have had a great voice, but I couldn't get it. Somehow, the communication, the device, was imperfect. John says, communication no longer breaks down with Jesus. It's unequivocally clear because he is the word of God. Listen to him. Sometimes, of course, communication is a problem because it's deliberately modified and changed to reflect some other reality. That too, John later says, that's not true. By the way, at Connection tonight, we're going to talk about that. These things are true, John says. I was a witness. I wrote them. You can trust them. John says the word became flesh, and he spoke. And when he spoke, it was the very word of God. Absolutely perfect communication. At least one other thing that John's saying in this passage is this. He's saying the word is the exact image of God. Paul put it the same way in Colossians chapter 1. He said he's the image or the stamp or the reflection of the invisible God. In other words, Paul was saying, just as John is saying, do you want to know God? Look at Jesus. You can't get it mixed up. When you see Jesus, you see God. Or as Jesus said to his disciples, who routinely were getting confused, he said to them on one occasion, let me make it really clear, fellas. When you see me, you're seeing the Father. Do you get it now? I'm his exact image. You know, for years... I've known people, and I'm one of them, who've had trouble with an image of God. I'm not sure why. I could tell you a few things. Uh, one, because a lot of people I respected were supposedly the mouthpiece for God. And man, did they get it wrong sometimes. Some people I respected were the image of God for me, and wow, did they crack the image. And I, I, I know another reason. I want God to be a certain way, 
And so I construct him that way. And sometimes, sometimes I construct him in my image. And look, there's some truth to that. We're made in the image of God. But my construction routinely manipulates God. And John is saying, I want you to read about Jesus. But before you do, I want you to know that the image that you see in Jesus is the image of God. Get rid of all your other notions of who God is for a minute. Just drop them by the way and look at Jesus. When you see Jesus... You've seen God. When you see Jesus, reach out and touch the blind man. It's the hand of God. When you see Jesus, tell a person who was a woman of ill repute, you're loved. You've heard the words of God. When you see Jesus busy teaching, and so crowded with people that somebody who has an invalid friend brings him right down in the middle and drops him literally in the floor and Jesus stops his theology. And he looks at him with kindness and he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. You saw God. My son, I know about your condition. My son, I understand because I'm walking in your shoes. My son, I get it. You want to be healed. Now let me tell you something. Your sins are forgiven. That's the source of all of our problems, son. And I'm going to give it to you. Forgiveness of sins. You're healed. Get up and walk. And he does. And you saw God. Amazing, this Jesus. Like no other figure in the history of the world, this Jesus. And why? Because he was God in the flesh. I want to conclude uh, by mentioning something. I say it quite frequently here, and maybe for some people too much. But I have to admit, we're kind of an academic church. Okay, so how many of you are either students or faculty or associated in some employment fashion with the university? Raise your hand. Just please do it. Just look around. Duh. Of course we're an academic church. We own that. We embrace it. It doesn't mean you have to be all hoity-toity academic to understand things that we say, at least I hope not. But we do emphasize the importance of truth in the mind. And we'll dig in. And we'll try to study. In this series called Rediscovering Jesus, we're going to use our brains to try to understand who Jesus is. And if we do it with our brains as best we can, we'll come up so short we might as well not even have started. That's what I want to say. Every one of us could exercise every capacity of our intellect and still fall short of the message that John's trying to communicate. Because John is not just saying, I want to introduce you to Jesus so that you can know him by my description. He says it later in John chapter 20. 
at the end. He tells us the whole purpose. He says these words were written. All this stuff I just said has one purpose. That you might have life. How do you have life? You have it through Jesus. How do you understand who Jesus is? You step into Jesus' life. You receive Jesus. John is not just giving a description. He's giving an invitation. Here's life. Let's discover Jesus. I want to say something else, and this is it. You know what? No matter where you're coming from, even if you don't believe, your life is still in Jesus, in Him. We live and move and have our being. Every breath you breathe is given to you by Jesus. Every part of your life is surrounded by Jesus. That's just a fact. But you know what's great? That whole life that you experience, you've got a whole new reality when you really know Jesus. Everything about your life can be transformed. And life will be redefined, not as this present world, but eternal life, and it's through Jesus. There's all kinds of things to learn about that and to relearn about that as we discover Jesus. So I invite you, rediscover Jesus with me, and let's have eternal life. Let's pray together. God, I thank you uh, for your word, your written word. It's so precious to us. It is the word of God. There's no doubt about that, and we refer to it routinely. I, I wouldn't preach without it. Got nothing to say. But your word has volumes to say, and we thank you for your word. But we thank you for more than your written word. We thank you for the living word. The one who's the author of life and the author of this word. The author of our life and the one who gives us an invitation to a new kind of life. We thank you for that word. The living, breathing Jesus Christ, the exact representation of God. And so we pray, Lord, as we do our best with our puny little minds and our weak little wills, to discover who you are, that you will open the eyes of our hearts. That you will enlighten our minds so that we can see you. That you will stir our hearts and our imaginations so that we can truly understand you. And that you will mold our will, redefine our will, so that we can follow you. And so that we can have life. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.